So anyhow, let's privilege of worship. Father, thank you for the chance to be here, for the privilege of a beautiful place with friends that we love, and the privilege of worshiping you in the season of your son's birth. Help us to understand the humility with which you did all of this for us, the humility by which your son chose to leave what he had in your word. Help us to leave just to become one of us that we could be one with you. Speak to us now from your word. Help us to leave today even more grateful for your love, even more willing to share that love. I pray for me and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you probably have bought your Christmas tree already. Mine comes out of a box every year, but uh, 32.8 million Americans actually bought live Christmas trees last year. That was an all-time record, something looking like that. They're costing more than ever. And I read about this just this morning. In fact, Sheila and I were putting this slide in here just before service started, just a second ago. I read just this morning that the reason they cost more than ever is because of the Great Recession. I thought, well, now, wait a minute. That was 10 years ago. How is that possible? Well, here's how it works. Back 10 years ago, not as many people bought Christmas trees because of the Great Recession. So the Christmas tree... Uh, farms didn't have as many to sell, so they didn't cut down as many, so they didn't have as, mu as much room to plant new trees. And it takes trees, Christmas trees, eight to ten years to grow to the size that we buy them. So ten years ago, more. I thought that was interesting. I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Now, whatever you spend for your Christmas tree this year, it won't be like that one. That's the world's largest Christmas tree. It's in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. It is featured in a lagoon. You're looking for the most interesting, 79 feet tall. Yeah. Now, if you're looking for the most interesting Christmas tree, I think, at least displayed indoors, you'd want to go to Paris, France. That's a shopping mall in Paris, France. And that's an 88 feet long Christmas tree hanging upside down. That's French. That's exactly right, John. The French would do that, wouldn't they? That sounds like something you'd see in Paris. So I got an idea. So David, next year, let's do that. Let's hang our Christmas tree upside down right there. Wouldn't that be, yeah, wouldn't that be a great idea? We had enough trouble last week just getting it that way. I can't imagine what that would look like. The most famous tree in America, of course, is the Rockefeller tree that was lit this year. If you're looking to spend a lot of money to bring Christmas inside, then you probably want this manger scene. Now, that looks like any other manger scene, but what you can't tell from the screen is it's seven feet long, four feet wide, and five feet tall. Yeah, you need two, right? We should get one of those for chapel as well. It would fill up chapel. And don't you think? I'd be glad to know it only costs $32,900. So let's get two, right? Don't you think? No? Okay, probably not. So the way we do Christmas looks so little like the way it originally was, right? I mean, when you think about it, Jesus could have been born to, the, to a Pharisee's family, could have grown up in wealth and royalty and splendor and all of that, could have been born to a Pharisee's family, in which case he would have grown up with the respect that was given to these people for the legalistic righteousness, but instead he was born to a Palestinian teenager who lived in a town so small, Nazareth, it's not mentioned one time in the Old Testament. Josephus, the first century historian, lists 200 towns and villages in Galilee, and Nazareth is not one of them. That's how small it was. Now, today it's a big city. It's the largest Arab village in, um, in Israel. More than 200,000 Arabs live there now. But back in Jesus' period, it was probably 20 families. That's how small it was. His adoptive father, Joseph, was so poor 
that after Jesus was born, when they made the uh, offering that was essential to the, uh, to uh, um, give thanks to God for uh, the birth of a child, the poorest sacrifice you could make was two pigeons. And that's what Joseph could afford. That's all Joseph could afford. That's the family Jesus entered. The way he was born. Here's the church of the uh, nativity. When you go to Israel, you go to Bethlehem, and we built before this church. It's the first church ever built back in the fourth century originally. That's a crusader era, but it was originally built in the fourth century. That's a Greek Orthodox structure, and it's magnificent when you walk in. It's fantastic. And you think, okay, now this is the right place for Jesus' birth. He should be born in a place like this, but he wasn't born there. Right side over here that's built above the cave that you walk into. You go around to the right side over here. Let me see if I can get this thing to work. Go over here to the right side over there. You can't see the picture, but there's a big line right over here. And then you go back underneath there, and you go down 14 steps, and you're inside this cave system, and that's where Jesus was born. Now, even the cave has been turned into a place of worship with all kinds of tapestries and things like that hanging around. But here's a cave that is just like it was in Jesus' period right outside Bethlehem. It would be something like that. That's where he would, was actually born. We think of the crib in which he was placed, right? But the Bible says he was born in a manger, and that is a manger. It's a stone feed trough. That's where he was laid. And so then he grows up in Nazareth, this tiny little town that I mentioned isn't described even once in the entire Old Testament. What makes that interesting to me is two miles from Nazareth was the Roman capital of the Galilee, the lower Galilee called Sepphoris. It's not mentioned in the Bible, but it was only two miles from Nazareth, and I guarantee you Jesus worked there. And Jesus worked there. His father Joseph was a tecton. We translate that as carpenter, but it means a worker with his hands. And the only place Joseph could make a living within walking distance of Nazareth was Sepphoris. So I'm certain, scholars are certain, that Joseph worked in Sepphoris, helped to build Sepphoris. It was being built there as well. Here's and in fact, Jesus, as a carpenter himself, likely would have worked there as well. Here's the theater in Sepphoris. Seats more than 4,000 people. I had a chance Jesus helped build that theater. Certainly went to it. Here what the, here's what the synagogue in Jesus' period would have looked like. Undoubtedly, Jesus went to that synagogue. Probably helped build it. Here's an example of just the mosaics that are on the sidewalks today, showing you how beautiful, how extravagant the city is. There's one set of mosaics inside one house in Sepphoris. We always go inside this, where we find this. That's on the floor. We call her the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Her eyes follow you wherever you go, back and forth. That was the well of Sepphoris, more than 25,000 people, less than two miles from Nazareth. But Jesus didn't live in Sepphoris. He lived in Nazareth. And then when he began his ministry, he could have done it in the temple, right? He was this magnificent rabbi, this remarkably gifted, obviously anointed teacher and rabbi, could have had a huge following in the temple down in Jerusalem. But instead, he chooses to live in Capernaum. That's what looked like in Jesus' day. For those of you that have been there, there is the synagogue right there, and over here is Peter's house right there. Those of you that have been there remember what we've seen with all of that. That's what it looked like in Jesus' day. So this massive crowd is following in Capernaum, so he could stay there. It's only got 50 villages rather than your kind of industrial center, but instead Jesus goes out to the other towns and villages rather than stay even in Capernaum. Well, as you know, Jesus was born to die. Revelation 13 says he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I hadn't thought about this till last week. Jesus arranged the manner of his death. You know that. 
right? I mean, the Holy Spirit prophesied through the prophets seven, eight hundred years before his death that he would be crucified, described in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, specifically the way that Jesus would be crucified, the worst form of death ever devised. But all Jesus had to do to be our anointed Savior, to be the one who would die for our sins, is to die for our sins. Why didn't he die the way Jews executed? That was a question I never thought about until this last week. I can show you where it would have happened. That's Mount Precipice. It's outside of Nazareth. Come in, guys. Good to see you. So in Luke chapter 4, remember that time that Jesus is preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, and the people are unhappy with him, and they drive him out to this hill where they're going to push him off the cliff, but he goes for the building and goes on his way. Remember that story? This is the only cliff in the area that qualifies for the biblical description. It's called Mount Precipice or Mount of Precipice. The way the Jews executed was they shoved the person off a height at least twice his height, and if the fall didn't kill him, usually the fall, now that sounds like a terrible way to kill somebody, but in that day it was actually humane. Usually the fall broke the neck and the person died instantly. If he had been shoved off that cliff, I guarantee you he would have died instantly. If the fall didn't kill them, then the first stone was intended to knock them unconscious so that then they would not feel their death. Jesus could have died that way, but instead, as you know, he died in the cruelest, most inhumane form of death ever devised. And then when he was buried, he could have been buried in a mausoleum like Muhammad in Medina, or a mosque, not a mosque, but a mausoleum like Lenin in Russia. But instead, he's buried in a borrowed grave, so nondescript, we don't know where it was. Some say church holy sepulcher, some say the garden tomb, in which case you go in the door and turn to your right, and right over here is where his body would have been laid. But he was only there for three days. No one marked the spot. No one cared where he was buried because it didn't matter because he wasn't there anymore. And we don't even really know where it was because it doesn't matter. For my point, Jesus did all of that intentionally for us. The only baby who ever chose his parents. I didn't choose my parents. Did you choose your parents? Did you choose the place where Korea, let's say. Did you earn the right to be born in America, not North Korea, let's say? Or to parents who would love you rather than those that wouldn't? Well, Jesus chose his parents, chose all of this, arranged all of this, and he did that for us. So this Christmas season, I mentioned last week, I'm trying each week to find something Christmas tells us about Christ. What can we learn about Jesus from Christmas? Last week, we learned from Christmas about the power of Christ. This week, we're learning from Christmas about the humility of Christ. Here's the passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto. But the text says He emptied Himself. He chose voluntarily to come at Christmas. He chose to leave His throne for our thorns. He chose to leave God's glory for our guilt and for our pain and our suffering and all that we go through as fallen people. He took the form of a servant. The word form means took the very nature of a servant and was born in the likeness of, born in the likeness of men. You ever think about the fact Jesus could have come at 30 years of age, could have entered the human race at any age He wanted, chose to be born as a baby, as a helpless baby, the Son of God, 
becoming a fetus, a billion light years across, the one who created the universe, 14.2 billion light years across, becomes a fetus and a helpless, defenseless baby. C.S. Lewis says, if you want to get the hang of the incarnation, think of how you'd like to be remade as a slug or a crab, <laughs> born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does the humility of Christmas say to us? Let me make two suggestions very quickly. First of all, it suggests that we should love others the way Jesus loves us. The passage in Philippians 2 that we looked at a moment ago begins with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The whole point of what follows, the whole point of that passage is we're supposed to think of others the way Christ thinks of us. That we're not supposed to love others as God loves us. That we're to humble ourselves before others and serve others as God humbles himself before us. He receives us. Richard Starnes, who founded World Vision, says, the beauty was, excuse me, was CEO of World Vision says, the beautiful simplicity of our faith is that it distills down to the exact same bottom line for both the brilliant theologian and the five-year-old child, love God and love each other, period. Doubt. If you will choose to love others the way God loves you this Christmas season, you will stand out. If you're the person being nice to the clerk in the stores, if you're the person who prays for someone who cuts you off on the freeway, if you're the person who serves family and friends in the midst of all of the hecticness and the chaos of these holidays, if you're the person who is gracious, if you're the person who is thoughtful, if you're the person who looks for a way to meet a need, if you're the person who seeks to love somebody with the humility with which God loves you, you'll stand out this Christmas and you will glorify the God who loves you. So one fact about the ability of Christmas is that God would call us to love others as He loves us. Here's the second. We should love ourselves as Jesus loves us. And that's harder. St. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. But that's tough for us. Our culture is going to measure your Christmas by what you get and what you give, right? How'd you do at Christmas is going to be a pretty Thursday. Going to, people want to know, where are you going on vacation? If you're going someplace, what did you get? What did you buy others? They're going to be measuring you by consumerism because we live in a consumeristic culture. And everything's about how you look and what you drive and where you live and what you have. And we're always measured by that stuff, and it's never enough. As soon as you get the new, never enough. As you get this house, there's that house. It's never enough. And the culture, therefore, says you're never enough. And it's really tough to pull back from that. But Christmas invites us to pull back from that and to believe that Jesus loves you so much he'd do all of that again just for you. If you were the only person who'd ever sinned, Christmas would have happened just the same. All of that for you, just for you. I'll tell you, the best piece of advice I've ever received in my whole life came from my youth minister when I was in high school who said to us, always remember the source of your personal worth. So is there something in your life that's making it hard for you to love you the way God loves you? Is there guilt in there someplace? Is there a burden someplace? Is there failure? Is there something in your life that makes it tough for you to love you the way God loves you? Well, Christmas is a great time to set all that aside, to put that in the hands of God 
say, Lord, if you haven't done this, Lord, I confess this to you. I ask you to forgive me, whatever it is. And then trust him with it so that he, it's gone. It's forgiven. Separated as far as the east is from the west. Buried in the depths of the deepest sea. Remembered no more. Christmas is a great time to accept that love. Is there somebody in your life whose need you could meet? That it's going to take humility on your part. You might have to be that person. You may have to be the person to take the first step toward forgiveness. You might have to be that person who's willing to step aside or step beyond or overlook or go past the past. Is there somebody who needs the kind of humble service you can give? Christmas is a great time to love somebody else the way God loves you, to glorify your Lord. So, close with this. This is Kirk Douglas and Johnny Carson. Some of you have no idea who those people are. But the guy on the right is named Johnny Carson. He actually had a late night talk show, believe it or not, called The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's before it was Jay Leno and Jimmy Fallon and 29 other people and all that way back in the day. And on the left is Kirk Douglas. He's actually still alive. I think he's 189 years old or something, but still alive. And so back in 1988, Kirk Douglas was being interviewed by Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. And they're commiserating together about the difficulty of being celebrities in our culture. Can't go anywhere without people asking for autographs. Everybody always kind of crowding around you, all that sort of thing. And Kirk Douglas tells Andy Carson about the time, sorry, I'm losing my voice, tells him about the time he's driving down the road, Kirk Douglas, and he sees a sailor hitchhiking. Doesn't usually pick up hitchhikers, but it's a sailor. He's in his Navy stuff. So he pulls over to the side to, to pick him up. The sailor opens the door, looks inside, sees that it's Kirk Douglas. Looks inside, sees that it's Kirk Douglas, movie star, for those of you that don't know. Really famous movie star. Looks inside, sees that it's Kirk Douglas. His jaw drops, and he stammers out, do you know who you are? <laughs> Kirk Douglas tells Johnny Carson, it's a really good question, one I've been thinking a lot about ever since. Well, Christmas tells us who God thinks you are. Do you agree? Let's pray about that. Take this moment, just you and God. God has all of eternity for you right now. Is there somebody God would have you serve with humble love the way that God loves you? Would you say yes to that today? Would you agree to that today? Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, whoever that is. Whatever need God would have you meet, whatever forgiveness God would have you offer or seek, However, God would have you humble yourself as Jesus humbled himself. Would you make that decision right now? Would you? And now, would you accept the humble love of God for you? Is there something in your life that makes it hard for you to love you the way God loves you? Well, give that to God right now. That God is right is more valuable than your opinion. Decide that God is right if you disagree. Decide right now and thank Him for the Christmas love of Christ. Father God, I thank You for who You think I am. So much of the time, it's hard for me to believe that that's true. So I ask you for the gift of faith to believe that. 
and ask you for the gift of humility to love the person you put on my heart this morning the way you love me. And to do all of this in gratitude for Christmas. May that be our commitment this week to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.